Good morning, Rick Road. Awesome to be here this morning. What an oh wow. Okay. I will not even say a word. <laughs> yes. So I mean I I enjoyed uh worship uh in the way we did it this morning simply because I think it speaks volumes of the kind of people that we are, diverse in nature, uh, different ways of expressing our love and our devotion to Jesus. Uh, for some, it's like, it's like okay, I'm, I'm still having to figure out where we are going with this. Uh, to some of us, it's like, okay, hyper energy, I've done this before. But the amazing thing is actually we all get to converge in our differences, in our backgrounds, in expressing to God our love and devotion to Him. And that's something special that we have that a lot of saints don't get to experience. And so it's something worth celebrating amongst us this morning. So I want to say to you, be the first to say Merry Christmas, if somebody hasn't said it already. I'm pretty sure a commercial has already said it to you. Uh, but I want to say Merry Christmas, simply because we are entering into our Advent series for the year. This is the time where we get to, again, uh, think on and ponder on the reality of the coming of this all-important person, Jesus Christ, into the world. What's amazing for us is we've been in Luke for the longest of time, and this year we got to dig very deep into this Christmas story. We got to look at it in, in very different ways. We, we didn't spend so much time really talking jingle bells or whatever else uh, within our Luke series, simply because we knew we had this time to celebrate Christmas together. So tis the season indeed to be jolly. And I want to ask you a question first by us starting. What are the things that you love the most about Christmas? What are the things that come to your mind when you think Christmas? You can shout it out. Food. Dave. David, food. <laughs> what do you have there? Presents. Yeah, that's one of the things, right? The joy of presents, right? I, I love the warmth of family. It's, it's also the season where everybody just wants to be with everyone huddled up in one space. So the joy of family is one of the things that we get. I, I'm, I'm going to miss that this year. Uh, but I'm going to be with my family this side uh, of, 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 of KZN. And so I'm going to enjoy my first Christmas in KZN. But one of the things that also comes to my mind when I think about Christmas is, uh, for some of us, presents were not a thing. Uh, nowhere Christmas trees, nowhere some of the traditional stuff that you see on TV. But uh, part of our tradition was, as a, as a young boy growing up, was, you knew for sure, for sure, for sure that you were going to get new clothing when it's Christmas season. So you could almost smell the new clothing smell uh, as it fast approaches this time of, se of the season. And you'd kind of look into catalogs or like just anticipate what is it you're going to buy when you get to the shops, when your parents finally take you for this shopping spree that you've been waiting for. So... I mean, it's a silly example, but it kind of shows that this season is riddled with so much uh, of these things that we do that indicate a sense of hope to us. So for me, it was a hope for a new pair of jeans, uh, small as it might be, 
but it was a hope nonetheless. It was actually as the year comes to an end, I know for a fact that something new is coming. And so that anticipation really kept the festive season alive for me. Now, it may be a different thing for you, but I know that this year, each of us have something in common. So one of the hopes that we all have is the COVID fatigue may come to an end. There's this sense that actually as the year ends, the hope and the anticipation into the new year is, may the new year come with new things. We, we've been talking about this new normal, but in a sense we're like, this new normal is not really what we want. We desire something beyond this so-called new normal. We, we, we desire and yearn for something of a better normal, right? And so I think we are not far from the heart of the Christmas spirit. We're not far from the core message of Christmas. The, the message of Christmas in its core is about hope. And, and I want to say a hope overwhelmingly better than any of these smaller hopes that we have. So we are not wrong at all to attach all kinds of desires and all kinds of sense of hopefulness to Christmas season because that's, that's at the heart of the Father. It's the heart of God to bring hope to us and good cheer even in this season. But my argument is actually for a believer, it's throughout our lives, is living with this grand picture of a hope of life restored for all of eternity beyond the present reality. So in Romans 15 verse 4, it says about the scriptures that the scriptures were written for instruction through endurance and encouragement that we might have hope. That's what the scriptures are written for. And the Christmas story is found in the scriptures. We, we don't have Christmas as we know it unless the scriptures informs the reality of the coming of the Messiah and causes us to want to celebrate this reality happened 2,000 years ago and still to date it sustains the hope of everyone who would put their faith in Jesus. And so the scriptures open this magnificent reality of a hope found in this coming of this all-important person. But this year, we've decided to look into the planning and the workings of this reality. How did the Christmas season come to be? Who's behind it? And so we'll explore the heart of the Father. We'll explore how the Father sends the Son, how the Spirit in His power actually exacts all things that God desired to happen. And we will look at how the Son accomplishes all of this in, in Christmas this time. And so before we go any further and we read the Scriptures, let's pray together and then we'll jump into it. Dear God, thank you for this awesome opportunity for each of us to take a pause again and recalibrate the reality of Christmas. Thank you, my God, that amidst everything that goes on, 
you are not invalidating all those festivities and exciting things that happen around Christmas, but you would desire for us to again draw to the center of it all, which is the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and the hope that he brings to each and every one of us. That as we, as we experience the many joys of being in this season, as we, as we again um, amass a sense of hope in our hearts, in, in life, Father, you give us an even bigger revelation of hope in yourself due to Jesus Christ and his coming. We pray this in your holy mighty name. Amen. So let's turn to uh, our current favorite gospel, uh, the gospel of Matthew together in chapter 1 from verse 18. So if you don't have your Bible, the verses are up on the screen. It reads, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to, to, to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. When Joseph woke up from sleep, from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Amen. This is God's word revealing the coming of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. I mean, it, 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 it continues to get exciting every time we speak about the fact that God planned for his son to come for this great purpose. And this great purpose is listed in as he, it's spoken of, its, of his name. The first thing that we see there is actually Jesus, his name has a meaning. His name is he will save, Yahweh saves. I mean, we keep on hearing the breakdown of this in the, in the original languages called Yeshua or Joshua as we know it. But the core of it is that he, Yahweh, saves. But I, I was forced to ask myself this question. Does Yahweh, the Lord, save or does Yahweh, the baby, save? Does Yahweh, the Lord, save or does Yahweh, the baby, save? It's an important question, and I'll show you why. Because, in a sense, Jesus' name is a message of hope, right? His name says, there's a God, true God of gods, who you guys know as the Israelites. You've lived with God. You've walked with God. You've seen God at work amongst you. And you know for sure, from time and time again, He's brought His salvation over you. So, His name is this awesome hope. That highlights that the Lord does save, right? The Lord does save. And it gives them a hope that even in the current present situation that they're in, God still can save. 
But the most amazing thing here is this baby it is Yahweh in himself. And so this baby comes with the reality of Mary or in the arms of Joseph. As they see him, he is the culmination of God's salvation to his people. And so it's not just that Yahweh, the Lord, saves. It's the fact that the baby that has come saves. And that is a grand gesture of God's hope that he's giving to a people. So the answer to this question, does Yahweh the Lord save or does Yahweh the baby save, is yes. Yes, for both. But I mean, we can talk about this name and I think we've kind of unpacked it in, the, in Luke. But there's a second one that's interesting. He's given another name that comes. And in the same way, this name can be broken down the same way. Emmanuel, God with us. You see, Emmanuel, this, this name actually is, is, is attached to a prophecy that Isaiah gave to one of the kings of Israel at a time when he had put his hope in something else, right? He had put his hope in the Assyrians, and God actually ushers a prophecy in Isaiah 7, 8, 9. You can read about it. And he ushers this prophecy, and the idea there is as this king refuses to put his hope in God, God is highlighting that, look, there will be a time when God will be with you. Your ever-present help will be with you. You don't need to look to another. But in the midst of that, God says, hey, Emmanuel, but the Assyrians that you put your hope in, they'll be the very ones who come and actually strike you and pillage you and bring judgment upon you for your turning away from God. But what's incredible is actually this, this is also put in, 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 in uh, Isaiah chapter 7 as, as a prophecy beyond the moment that it's being told in. And this prophecy we see right in the same scripture that we are reading about the virgin giving birth. This is, this is crazy. Virgin giving birth. How? How? And I think it's appropriate. It's so in line with what God is actually trying to communicate with the name that he attaches to the son that's to be given birth to by this virgin. It's not just an encouragement that God will be with us just as he promises that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Right? It's, it's true of the name, but it's actually the promise that God has actually physically, embodyingly come to be with his people. And Jesus Christ is exactly that. But we have to ask, we have to break this name down. God with us. Who is God? And what does it mean for him to be with us? Who is God and what does it mean for him to be with us? So I want to say that this, this idea of God is actually a complex concept. In some way, you and I, each and every one of us actually, if I had to give you a mic right now, you'd be able to express to me who God is to you, how you've experienced who God is. But when you begin to piece those realities together, you realize that God is far beyond maybe my own measure of who God is. Because as I experience and absorb the experiences of others, I realize that God is far more transcendent than I make him out to be. 
And it's, it's the reality in the scriptures. God expresses who he is as this complex being that you and I can't fully fathom. This concept we call the Trinity, right? We call it the Godhead. We call God in these ways in which even though when we piece it together, we can't fully comprehend. But that's the reality of what God's transcendence is. It's that actually you and I in our categories, whatever definitions we put, no matter how many words I'm going to try to use to express who he is, even now, I can never fully envelop who God is. And it's important that that's true. It's important that you and I can't fully conceive who God is. Why? Because he's God and you are not. If you fully understood God in your cognition, God would only merely be a fiction of your imagination. But he's not. God is outside of our own reality. And in fact, he's the one who creates our reality. And therefore, what we experience and what we know about who God is, is limited. Will always be limited unless he reveals, he reveals himself. And so this complex God that we speak about, we actually pick, pick this complexity up even in our verses that we've read. We see three instances where God appears in different ways. And you kind of ask yourself, but where's God here? Who, who is God exactly here? And so it speaks about Jesus from verse 18. It speaks about Jesus, who we've just unravel the reality of who he is in name, but who he, in both his names, but who he is not just as his name, but who he is as he appears to us. He is God with us, right? He is Yahweh saved. So in one sense, we have God depicted in Jesus Christ, but then we see that somehow there is this entity, the Holy Spirit, now, in our knowledge, it's actually God is the only creator of the heavens and the earth. He's the one who brings about life, right? And so when we look at the Holy Spirit here, and we are told that somehow he's the one who brought about life in the womb of, of Mary. When Mary had not known any man, she was a virgin, only God can bring about such, such a life. And so it should blow our categories and say, okay, so you have Jesus who is the very baby that the Holy Spirit is... Cons What's going on? My, my mind can't keep track. And so there are better people who can explain this than I. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step aside in a bit to play a video, um, just preparing the media guys while I go through the rest of it. So it, it, it starts there, right? You see Christ and then you see the Holy Spirit doing something very God-like, which means the Holy Spirit in himself is God, but as well, you see another character here that um, it says that the Lord appeared to him in a dream in jo to Joseph. Which Lord? Je Jesus is being born. The Holy Spirit is putting seed in Mary. Uh, and there's the Lord who appears in Joseph's dream. So you see these three entities that are all God. And we are left confused and with a, with, a with a job jaw together. And so the Lord, spoken as one who sends the angel who gives directives to these guys, 
but he's, he's there. And he's this, it's, the same, it's, the written, it's written in the same way that it's been written across the scriptures as Yahweh, this same guy, God, who has been present amongst them, the God who's orchestrated all things. So Isaiah 7.14, which I was speaking about, is actually prophesied <laughs> into this moment to really bring about this idea of a God who has this kind of plan and is working something out, but in a super complex way and using every aspect of who he is and his being to make it come to be. And that's why for us it's so important to really study in the scriptures this plan and this work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit throughout the scriptures. And so I want to show us a video. It's slightly long, but I think it's quite an important one for us to dig into the reality of who the Trinity is. And from there, we'll then jump into kind of my, my message around who, what the Father's heart is for the Christmas season. Are we ready up there? The Bible says there's one God, but in other parts of the Bible, God is three, Father, Son, and Spirit. How can it be both? Yeah, this is a question that has mystified people for thousands of years. And while we can't fully explain it, I think we can better understand what it is that we can't fully understand. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, think of it this way. Here's a two-dimensional plane. And then here's an object with three dimensions that's going to pass through the 2D plane. Okay, right. From this perspective, the 3D objects above and below the plane. So now it makes sense, but imagine you were a 2D person stuck on the 2D plane. What would you see? I don't know. What would I see? Well, it would look like this. Oh, yeah, okay. From this perspective, it looks impossible. It's one object, and then two objects, and then three. But in reality, they're all one, just not in a way you're capable of understanding. Now, let's take this whole thing as a visual analogy for how we experience God. The claim in the Bible is that God is transcendent, a divine being through whom we live and move and have our being. Or, as God says, I am. Okay, but I live here in this universe, so when God appears, it will make sense in some ways, but in other ways, it will break my categories. Exactly. This happens all the time when people encounter the God of the Bible. So let's look first at how this happens in the Hebrew Scriptures. Throughout the Hebrew scriptures, God appears in complicated ways that don't quite fit our categories. One common way this happens is with God's attributes. So an attribute is a way to describe what something is like. For example, a soccer ball is round. Right. Or God is wise. Yeah, great, let's take God's wisdom. So the book of Proverbs says that God created the world by his wisdom. But then there are also poems in the book of Proverbs that describe God's wisdom as a person, a co-worker through whom God architected the universe. So God's attribute becomes a separate character? Yeah, this also happens with God's glory, which sometimes appears as a human figure on a throne that's engulfed in fire. 
or take God's word, which he can speak to people, but sometimes his word appears like a person. Wait, so God's attributes have become new little gods? No, no, the biblical authors believe there's only one all-powerful God. But they're comfortable talking about them as different characters. Yeah, this is part of the way that the biblical authors portray the one God's complex identity. They're God's attributes and also distinct from God. Distinct from God and also God. Yes. Once we learn to spot that way of talking about God's identity, you begin to see it all over the scriptures. In fact, you find it in the first sentences of the Bible that mention the Spirit of God. So the opening line of the Bible is pretty familiar. In the beginning, God created. But then keep reading. Who is it that we see within creation hovering over the waters? The Spirit of God. Yeah, so the Spirit refers to God's personal presence and energy that we can interact with here within creation. And so the Bible can refer to God's Spirit as distinct from God. Distinct from God, and also God. It's God's Spirit. And while this sounds strange from our point of view, this complexity is what the biblical authors are trying to get us to see. So we've looked at God's attributes and God's Spirit. Now let's make our last stop exploring God's complex identity in the Hebrew Scriptures with a character called the Son of Man. So in the Bible, there's only one God that people are to worship, which makes this story in the book of Daniel really surprising. Daniel has a dream about a human figure called the Son of Man, which means a member of humanity. And Daniel dreams about this human getting elevated on a cloud, up and then higher up. Up into God's space. Yes, and then this human sits at the right hand of God's heavenly throne, and all humanity worships this human alongside God. A human where I expect to see God. Yeah, this human is a part of God's identity. This vision is about the climactic hope of the whole biblical story. God and humanity become one so they can rule the world together as one. So the Son of Man is distinct from God and also God. Exactly. So think back over everything we've looked at. In the Hebrew Scriptures, God's identity is complex. And so when Jesus' followers encountered God as the Father, Son, and the Spirit, they already had categories for how these could all be the one God of the Bible. Okay, let's talk about that. Okay, so in the New Testament, we're introduced to Jesus of Nazareth. And he's human, but way more. His favorite title to call himself was the Son of Man. The figure in Daniel's vision. And the claim is that he is this complex God become human to unite other humans with God. Okay, so the Gospels portray Jesus as fully human. And also as Yahweh, the God of Israel. Jesus went around saying and doing things that only Yahweh can do, like forgiving people's sins or calming the chaotic waters. So they're saying Jesus is a human, distinct from God, and also God. Yeah, and that might sound crazy unless you've been reading the Hebrew Scriptures, which prepared you for it. And then check this out. Jesus' first followers, the apostles, talked about his identity using the language of God's attributes. They called Jesus the glory of God, or the apostle Paul called Jesus the wisdom of God. Or John opens his gospel calling Jesus the word of God through whom the world was created. And then he says, the word was with God and was God. Okay, I get what they're doing and it hurts my brain. Totally. And if you want to spin your brain even more, consider this. Jesus, who's portrayed as God become human, would talk to God as a distinct person. And when he did, he called him Father. When Jesus talked about God, he wasn't referring to an abstract force or energy. He was talking about a personal being that you can relate to. There's a lot of personal images of God in the Bible, ruler, 
creator, judge. But Jesus consistently referred to God as my father. Jesus experienced God as a source of infinite love. He said, the father has loved me since before the creation of the world. Apparently, Jesus knew the Father as an eternally others-centered, life-giving being. Right, like in the story about Jesus' baptism, when the Father says from heaven, this is my son whom I love. And then keep reading, in that story, the person who brings that message of love from the Father to the Son is the Spirit of God. So we've talked about God's Spirit. Here within creation, it's through the Spirit that we interact with the divine. Yeah, and the same was true for Jesus. Through the Spirit, he experienced the Father's love. But it didn't stop there. Jesus promised that through him, the Spirit would go out and share the Father's love with all humanity and with all creation. So it can look like these are three distinct gods, but in some way that transcends my view of reality, they're also one. Right. This is what later followers of Jesus called the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are the one God of the Bible. I could see how they got there. But this isn't just a philosophy puzzle. To describe God as a triunity is to claim that the universe is held together by an eternal community of love. Which is something that I can't really understand. But the God of the Bible isn't a being that you understand. The point is to know and be known by this God so that we can participate in his love. It's a great... I love Bubble Project because these guys are far smarter than I am, one. But the, the ability for them to actually explain stuff in such a simplistic way. Uh, one of the guys who keeps on asking questions, his name is John, and I like him. He reminds me of myself. He, he asks the most simple and sometimes ridiculous questions, but they're actually helpful because they get us to get our heads around some of these very complicated ways in which God describes who he is in the scriptures. Now, with us knowing that, the complexity of who this God is, the reality is, as, as he said, the Hebrew scriptures cannot detail this God out to the people of God throughout, right? And so the people of God would have had experiences, tons of experiences, of who God is. But I, wanna, I want us to reflect back on the initial experience between humans and God. The initial experience is the experience of the Garden of Eden, right? It's the fact that actually man dwelt with God. And I love that, he exp that these guys were expressing how, how God in himself is a loving community, an eternal loving community, which when God created us, really the intent was we would be part of that, but also express that in and of ourselves as how we relate to one another. Part of the expression of who we are as a church is that, is us expressing this beauty of relationship between uh, per persons, right? And that actually showcases the beauty of this loving community that is God. And that's, that's actually part of the promise. Part of the hope that Christmas is about is the bringing back, right? He spoke about the Son of Man who became, I mean, G Jesus became man so that we could have this mediator between God and man. And we would then converge and become uh, fully in relationship with one another yet again. That's the hope of the message of Christmas, is Christ becomes the pinnacle 
of convergence between humanity and God himself. And so the experience of the, of the, of the Israelites, no fellowship with God, perfect fellowship with God, now have lost that, right? They kicked out of the garden, now they live in this hindered state of fellowship. They are not able to fully fellowship with God as they were intended to. But the beauty here is the story of the Bible is full of this ongoing pattern of God drawing his people close to himself. He starts with Abraham and out of him makes a chosen people who were to be the beacon of light that brings the reality of a God who's wanting to have relationship again with people to the nations, right? This sense of proximity to God, this closeness. And what's funny is we read the scriptures over and over again beyond the experiences. So some of the things that we see that the desire of of David and others who write the Psalms is, Oh Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. There's a longing in each and every one of us to be in the presence of God. Psalm 73 is one of my favorite ones where it says, Whom have I in heaven but you? The, the earth has nothing I desire but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, however, the Lord is my portion forever. It just speaks of this depth of desire to be with God. And so part of the experiences of the people of God in Exodus 15:13 it says in your loving kindness you have led the people whom you have redeemed he's speaking now about the people who went out of Egypt he redeemed them and it says in your strength you have guided them to your holy habitation. Even the idea of this promised land that he had promised them, Canaan, which is a physical place that's there in history, we know where it is, was a foreshadow of the reality of us having dwelt in where God is. Ultimately, it's about the God who calls them to this place of promise. It's not about the place in itself. It's about this relationship that needs to be mended, that we desire so much, that the Psalms express so much about. And what's funny is, even in the midst of God drawing his people to him, somehow we had missed this picture. We, we tried our own ways to try and make this a fix up. And God encourages it, but at the same time, highlights the fact that this cannot be solved by human cunning. And so in Second Chronicles 6, uh, 18, it says, but will God indeed dwell with mankind on earth? It's a question of yearning, right? And it says, behold, heaven and highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. This is Solomon. After building a temple in hopes that God would dwell in this temple and would be in proximity to them. In some sense, they have that, right? They have this holy place that God dwells in. But the reality is there's so much rules and restrictions that still separate God and men. I, I can't believe when, when you read uh, into Levitical law and you realize that the high, even the high priest who once a year would come in and do atonement for sins of, of the people, right? He, he would go into the Holy of Holies, but he would have a rope around him just in case he had not done enough for his own sin and he'd be struck down and dead. Nobody can rush in and pull him out lest they die too. So they had to rope him out. 
What a massive restriction. You have access, yet your access could be your death. And that's the restrictions that we have. There is actually, even with the building of the temple and the instituting of all these laws, still the access to dwell with God in this harmonious love relationship that is expressed in himself, that he desires for us and him, somehow we still then have access to it. In Second Chronicles uh, chapter 2, 6, it says, But who is able to build a house for him? For the heavens and the highest heavens cannot contain him. So who am I that I, I should build a house for him except to burn incense before him? So even then, there's a hesitation of, I could build the house, but even that, it's just not enough because God does not dwell in houses built by men, by human hands, right? So I, I'd rather just burn incense and hope that that suffices for relationship. I mean, that even pales in comparison to what we get to experience in human relationships, there is a level of intimacy there that is not as heavily guarded and restricted as what we are seeing between man and God in these passages. And so the best picture painted in the Bible of this reality that we yearn for and that Jesus Christ actually came <laughs> to bring us into is in Revelation 21, verse 2 to 3. So it'll be on the screen, I believe. It says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they will his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Wow. I want to be there. I want to see that. I want to experience that. And the reality is we can and we will. In fact, we have started to and will continue to into all of eternity. You see, God with us, Emmanuel, is not merely a promise. It's a reality for those who believe in this baby who came. It's a reality for us. It's what the, the triune God had envisioned and, and had dreamt of when they fashioned the world and all that's in it, is that they would have us, their image, perfectly dwell in perfect peace, harmony, and in love with them while we express and expand their glory as we ourselves express the same heart. So my task was, yes, to give a foundation for the Trinity, but also the strength of this hope that we speak of in the Christmas spirit. But it's also to highlight something, the one person of the, of the Trinity, and that is the Father. And I chose to title this The Heart of the Father, because the backdrop of everything that we've spoken about is actually, it's a desire from the heart of God to see this be. Why has he pursued mankind for all, for all of this time? Why has he pursued men to make this become? 
And one of the, the scriptures that kind of validates that so much of God's desire to see us there is Jesus himself when he speaks uh, to his disciples. He says in John 14 too, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it is I, if it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. This is the hope that he chooses to give his disciples when he says he's about to leave. Is that, guys, listen, I'm preparing a place for you. I'm preparing a place for you for this great yearning that you have in your heart to be in perfect relationship with this maker of yours. And one of the things that actually expresses the heart of God far more than anything is how often Jesus describes his mission. He, he tethers it with the, with the reality of the Father sent. You, can't, you cannot help but hear that actually this is God's passion. It's his desire to send his Son for this very purpose, for this very hope that we might be reconciled to him. I mean, since I'm already doing a, a whole Bible overview, might as well go back to Genesis 3, where we see the prototype of this very truth. So Adam and Eve sin, and God is there, and he's speaking to them, and he's ushering curses. He's giving them judgment for their disobedience. But in the middle of their disobedience, his heart leaks out, and he says, Yep, you, you will have childbearing with pain, yet you will have an offspring who the serpent may bruise his heel, but he will crush the serpent's head. She's speaking about a seed. He speaks about a seed, and he speaks about this child who would be born. And so it's no wonder that the Christmas message is riddled with this hope of a baby. It's like, well, we're going to talk about a baby? Really, what, what does that have to do with anything? It has everything to do with everything. That we make a big deal of this baby because of that very reality. That this baby is a baby of promise. And he too knows it. Because in John chapter 6, verse 37 and 38, and actually verse 65, we see Jesus speak of this reality. Verse 37, 38 says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. His will was that. The prototype uh, uh, gospel was that there would be one who comes. And that's Jesus, yes. But Jesus, once he's come, he says, no, the Father has given me people. And those that he has given me, I will not cast away. They, they will be with me all the time. And in verse 65, it says, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Now, this, th these verses, I mean, Jesus says this three times. This is the third time in John 6 alone, where he speaks about, Unless the Father, unless the Father. I, it's one of the scriptures that caused the most contention uh, regarding faith, right? Some people are like, okay, no, 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 only the chosen, but how do we know who are, who are chosen? How do we know? It's like, don't riddle yourself with that. In the middle of this is this. 
unless it is granted him by the Father. Now, if you know Jesus and you've put your, your, heart, your, your faith in Jesus, guess what? It was granted by the Father. And it's a rejoicing that is supposed to be resounding in the room regarding the fact that you and I have come to know Jesus. It's because of the Father. It's his heart. He sent Jesus so that you and I might be reconciled to him. And so as we look at these scriptures and we paint a picture of this hope that we ought to have, this, this world is full of many troubles. There's so much that we can be fixated on regarding this world. But there's a, a deeper reality in being where we are that God wants us to live in. The reality of relationship with him. Now we may have it even now. For the Jewish people, many restrictions, animal sacrifices, none of them sufficed. For us, perfect sacrifice being given in Jesus Christ and he has given us full access to the Father. And you and I relate to him in prayer and in reading of scriptures. But there's coming a reality of a relation 21. There's a coming reality of a relation 21 where our prayers will pale in comparison to fully expressing our heart and our praises to our King and our Lord before him. It will be so amazing, so joyous. It will feel overwhelming even to each and every one of us, so much so that we would not help it but praise Him day and night and day and night and day and night. We will not look to the left or look to the right to see who's singing with us. We will not look to a choir who will be dragging us. We ourselves will be overwhelmed by the reality of who He is and bless His holy name. And that's what we desire. That's what we yearn for. So Christmas joy and hope is actually rooted in a hope of a future that is far better than the present reality. What, what does it mean for our present hope? What, what does it mean for the little hope that we have in this and in that? You see, there's nothing wrong in hoping that this will happen and hoping that that will happen. There's nothing wrong in bringing those things in prayer and saying, if the, God, if the Lord wills, so it shall be, right? There's nothing absolutely wrong. In fact, God encourages us to live in such a way as a people full of hope. In fact, you, you can even say the small hopes that we have are a training ground for us to fully grasp the bigger hope uh, that we have in God, right? And we should hold on ever so firmly to that reality. The issue there is if we allow the small hopes. Have you hope in dwelling forever with God? Have you put your faith in Jesus, who is the direct access to this yearning that you have to fully dwell with God? Do we still see Christmas as that reality? Or is Christmas just about presents, maybe clothing for me, maybe something else? Maybe be, sometimes it's even a, it's a beautiful thing like, okay, I'm giving hope to others. Maybe I'm going to give a present to those who can't afford, right? Those are beautiful, and I think they do speak of the heart of God. 
But if we remove the ultimate heart of God, which is to draw us to himself. And I couldn't help but think when I was, when I was preparing this that we, we often speak about the story of the prodigal son, right? And we look at the, the father who was worried about the son and then the son comes and the father embraces. That's amazing. It's an amazing story and it depicts God 100%. It just overwhelms me the fact that actually even when we had not come to our senses yet, even when we were still left in the pigsty eating with the pigs, even when we were left turned to all kinds of things that distract us from this ultimate hope, God came down for us. So he came so that we could return. And in fact, he's He's, he's gone back to the Father now. Jesus has gone back to the Father now, but he will return so that you and I will never depart again. That's so amazing. This week as we were reading Matthew, one of the thoughts that kept on spinning in my mind is this reality that I am safer in the hands of God than in anyone's hands, even my own. I am safest in the hands of God. And just thinking about that in the present life and how it practically works itself out is actually me fully investing and fully trusting in this baby that was in a manger, in this baby that seemingly had no glory for us to esteem him of, in this baby that God said would be the hope of the world, he'd be the salvation that I needed so that we could close that gap forever, that chasm, that great separation that was put uh, between me and God, that is sin and its consequence death, that trusting in Jesus is truly the solution for me to truly embrace the heart of the Father, relationship with Him. So friends, my thing is, do we still see the story as the beginning That it was at the beginning that it was planned and outworked in such a beautiful way by the hand of God to reconcile us. Is that the center of our hope? Or is that just a sidebar that keeps us going? At some point, it will fade away. At some point, if it's a sidebar, it will not mean much. If it's a sidebar, you will put your ultimate hope on other things. And the result won't be this picture painted. The result is only that if we truly trust in what God has set before us as the ultimate hope. So as we dig into the plan and the work of God in the story of Christmas, my, my hope is actually more and more our hearts are rooted in the hope that he is building in us. So with that being said, I'd like for us to stand and we're going to take a moment to take communion. If we can just grab the communion elements and I'll lead us.
So yes, Jesus came as a baby in a manger. But there was purpose and there was meaning behind his coming. Behind his coming was this heart of the Father to draw us to himself. That he, he would draw us to a place of him dwelling with us and us dwelling with him. With our hearts desiring nothing. Psalm 73 again. The, the heaven, whom have I in heaven? Like, even heaven, if it's without God, it means nothing for me. Heaven has to be with you, God. The earth has nothing I desire. And I can't help but think that actually, as Jesus was sitting with his disciples, about to show them these elements, about to show them what he is going to do and offer and the price that he's willing to pay because of the one who sent him. And this is the result. For him to be with us for all of eternity, he gave his body. It was broken. It was bruised. He bled through his flesh. He was speculed even to an emotional... So everything about him in his physicality was abused for you and I. And his blood was shed on our behalf. God is incredibly intimate. It's, these are very physical. If I were to ask you to break yourself and bleed for me, that's an incredibly intimate thing to ask of you. And in the same way, God does that because that is his heart for you and for I. And so as we take this, why don't you find in your heart a welling up of rejoicing that says, the Father wanted me so much so that he came down from heaven, came a baby for my sake. Why don't you find it in your heart to rejoice in the reality that he came to give of himself in body, he shed his blood? Why don't you think in yourself that all of this is for the ultimate culmination of the reality of me dwelling with my Father in heaven for all of eternity with no reason to worry about anything else but the perfect love and harmony and relationship I get to share with him forever and ever. Let me pray for us and we'll take communion. Thank you, Lord, for what you have done. Thank you, my God, for your heart. Thank you, Father, that you're not just Father to Jesus, but you're Father to me. That your son, when he taught his disciples to pray, he said, say, our Father. Thank you that you embrace us as sons and daughters because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. Thank you that you don't just embrace us as that, but as a father, you want to dwell with your kids. Thank you that Jesus, who is called our bridegroom, as a, as, as, as a husband, he wants to dwell with his wife, the bride. Thank you that the spirit that Jesus left for us dwells richly in us to show and give us a guarantee of us living with you for all of eternity. What an amazing thing that you desire to dwell with us, my God. We thank you for the sacrifice it took to give us that hope. Amen.